So uh, I want to talk to you this morning about the spiritual life. I was thinking about some of the songs that we just sang uh, and, and how it calls us to the spiritual life. We've said basically that Jesus, you're enough. Jesus, you're my everything. Jesus, uh, you paid it all, all to you I owe. And so when we think about the Christian life, we think about the spiritual life, it is wrapped up and um, all about Jesus. And yet we all love a good experience, right? Anybody like a good experience? I guess not. I mean, let's, go, let's just all go home if you don't want to have a good experience. I think it's safe to say that everyone loves, everyone enjoys a good experience. And so what do I mean by an experience? Well, it's simply an event. It's an occurrence that leaves an impression on someone. That's what an, an event or a, an experience is. For instance, you go to the movies. You want the plot in the movie to be so good, the characters to be uh, acting so well that when you walk out of the movie theater with your friends, with your family, you want to still be talking, thinking about discussing the plot of the movie on the way to the car, right? You don't want to walk out of the movie theater thinking, well, that was a wasted $45 that I spent. You know, like, that's a great investment. Um, when, you went, when you're at the ball game, maybe you're watching a ball game you want it to go to an overtime. You want it to be a nail-biter. Of course, you want your team to come out on the victory side, but you want it to be a nail-biter and, and, and just one of those monumental type of experiences. This is beginning of wedding season, and so when you go to a wedding or you're getting married, you want the wedding to be perfect. You want it to be magical. You go on vacation to a national park or state park or somewhere that's beautiful and explore nature. You want to capture every bit of the beauty and the majesty that there is in the nature. When you come to church and you gather with the people of God, we also desire to experience something powerful. I hope and pray this morning that none of us gathered with the church just simply to go home for Mother's Day's lunch. I hope we've gathered this morning because we want to experience the person and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit in our lives. And so experiences are good. They are good gifts from our gracious God. Nonetheless, experiences in and of themselves are a terrible substitute for the Lord. People who have encountered and been transformed by the Lord, think about this, they have had the ultimate experience. We, if we know Jesus, know the God of all creation, and we get to experience him on a daily basis. Nothing else in the world can top that experience. And yet, if we're not careful as believers, we can get our eyes off of Jesus, off of that experience of knowing and walking with the Lord, and be tantalized by lesser things. Think about the Apostle John. We preached and walked through the book of Revelation last year, and there in Revelation 17, John is having this vision. He's with an angel who's walking him through this vision, and in the midst of this vision, he sees the great prostitute who's seated upon the beast, and he looks at her, and the Bible tells us he was greatly marveled. Why? Because he saw in the great prostitute someone who was beautiful and elegant and even sensual. We might say it this way she was fine and in the midst of that vision he gets his eyes off of the Lord and onto lesser things it can happen to any of us we want to experience the Lord it's amazing how all of this works you know when 
Within the creation and the makeup of human beings, God has built within us the capacity to sense. We have five senses, right? We have the sense to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, and to feel. And so these five senses, in large part, God has given them to us as windows into our soul. They enable us to experience much of what life has to offer. We take it in through these senses. Through them we get to enjoy, think about this, the beauty of creation. We get to enjoy the sound of beautiful music. We get to to smell the enticing aromas that are out there. The taste of good food and the touch of a loved one. Experiences are good gifts that point us to a good giver. If we're not careful, however, the experience can become the goal rather than the pathway that takes us to the goal. We begin to get our eyes on lesser things rather than on the greater thing. Oftentimes when I will contact a a guest, a family that's visited our church, whether it's a call or a a text message, an email maybe, I I will pose a question like this. And I'll kind of phrase it as a statement. I hope that you had a great experience on Sunday. As I make that statement, it kind of makes me cringe within because I don't want it to just be about this momentary experience, and yet at the same time, I understand, and with English language, it's really hard to to say anything other than that, but I don't want them to think that the experience is just here, but it's something greater than that. It's not just hearing music, but where is the music moving us to? It's not just hearing the preaching and the Word of God, but what is it moving us to? You see, I understand that when we come and gather to worship as a church, it's so much more than theatrical experience. Though we want to do things well. We want to sing good songs. We want to sing songs well. Hopefully the preaching is done well. We want you to be greeted as you come onto our campus and through our doors. We want those experiences to be good because, again, they're windows into the soul. And many times, especially guests, will make their decision whether or not they will ever return before they walk through the doors of this building. It's how they're greeted on the parking lot. It's how signage works and how they know where to go and and what to do with their children. All of that plays into their experience. But those experiences are just pathways because we want to set under the word of God and worship almighty God together so that we experience him. We always want to keep our eyes on the greater prize. Many times... We describe what I'm talking about, this connection, as a spiritual experience. I can remember as a teenager growing up in my home church back in northwest Arkansas, and uh, we had a phenomenal worship ministry with a huge choir and a full orchestra and a band and uh, a bunch of praise team singers out front and, and just incredible, incredible music. And I remember as a teenager uh, standing there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and, and the way the service would typically start would be a, a big song, some sort of celebrative song, and the, the people on the platform would start it, and the congregation is standing, and we're singing together. And, and as we're singing, the choir comes in out of the, the doors in the choir loft, and they would crisscross across the, the, the choir loft there and take their places, and we would all just begin to sing together. It was this magical, wonderful experience. I remember standing there and, and singing, and my, I would get these tingly feelings. It's almost like you're caught up into heaven. And then there were Sundays where I didn't get that tingling experience, and sometimes I would even think that we worship. 
Did we meet? What was going on? And so I began to think about that. And so it really, for me, and maybe for a lot of people, was more about the experience than what the experience was supposed to be pointing us to. Paul here, in these verses we're going to look at this morning, is going to point us to what the spiritual life is. You see, the spiritual life is not in a tingling sensation. It's not in feeling good. It's not in uh, earthly, temporal things. Spiritual life is wrapped up in Jesus. You see, as Christians, we seek Christ alone through faith, and it's him that gives and brings us life. We as Christians can rejoice in all things. Think about this, because our spiritual life is much more than isolated experiences. You can come to church and not, quote-unquote, feel something, and yet still meet with the Lord. Sometimes people joke and say, what you feel may be the taco you ate last night, not the Spirit of God. It's a little vulgar for Sunday morning, but get ready because Paul's going to be real vulgar in this passage. Look with me in Philippians chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, and look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul here lays out in these verses a description of what we're going to call this morning the spiritual life. He reminds the Philippians that nothing on earth compares to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no greater experience than that. So he's going to tell them, he's going to remind them that they will never regret pursuing the Lord. Paul here uses strong words. He warns the church against false teachers. We've seen that already in this letter. But the issues still turn in part on the willingness to put aside what the world and self-interest might choose in order to pursue Christ. Many times I believe in our Christian life, it's not so much that we have false teachers running around. I believe that we are our own false teacher at times when we allow our eyes to get on lesser things rather than keeping them on Jesus. And so this spiritual life is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ because salvation is about knowing him. It does not mean knowing about Christ. 
It's not, I know who Jesus is. I know some things about Jesus. James tells us that the demons of hell believe in Jesus. They shudder at his presence, but they're not bowing their knees in worship and surrender. Instead, it means bringing in relationship, being in relationship with the living Lord. And so in that relationship, you have a desire to know him more and more and more. That's what Paul's saying here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Let's look at these verses and what Paul has to say about this spiritual life. The spiritual life, first of all, is this. It is not found in religious activity. It's not found in religious activity. Look there in verse 1. Paul begins, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe to you. We may read this first verse and think, here's another preacher that doesn't know how to end a sermon. Right? He's another Pastor James. It's not what Paul's saying at all. D.A. Carson tells us that the, the, the word here that's translated is back then during this time was used as a connective participle. And so in many ways we could understand this as so then or like. He's connecting what he's already been saying. Remember Paul's picking up the theme that he's been laying there. He introduced this theme of uh, of. of, of emulation. He talks about Epaphroditus and, and Timothy being these two great lights to follow, to emulate, to, to model in your walk with the Lord. And so he lays that out in the latter parts of chapter 2. Now he's going to use his own life, his own passion for the Lord as an emulation to be followed. Mistakenly though, many people believe the spiritual life is found in religious activity. I've got to be in church. I've got to do this. I've got to whatever. They think that their spiritual life comes through spiritual experience or spiritual rituals. Paul here makes it clear in these verses that that is not the case. It's not found in religious activity in and of itself. For this reason, he warns the church to look out for those who promote, promote such things. Look out for those who are mutilating the flesh. Look out for those who preach and teach a false gospel. Look out for those who are saying, you need Jesus, but you all also need something to go along with Jesus. You need religion and religious activity with your Jesus. Now, I'm all for multiple things being on my plate when I'm at dinner. Right, guys? You don't want just a steak. A steak's enough, but I like baked potato. One of, one of the restaurants that I rarely, don't, rarely go to but love is Texas Day of Brazil, right? I mean, you can go there and walk out with a meat sweat. I mean, just bad. But I'm not the guy that just walks in there and eats five pounds of meat. I want to go and enjoy the salad bar. I want to grab some sushi and, and kind of get my taste buds moving before I get to the main entree. But when it comes to the Christian life, we don't look at it and say, I need multiple things. No, Jesus is enough. So Paul calls these promoters of the false gospel that he talks about here in verse 2, he calls them dogs and evildoers. Those are two titles you don't want. They are these people, these evildoers, these dogs are those who think that through their mutilation of the flesh, spiritual points are scored with the Lord. And so who are these people? Well, the New Testament tells us that they are Judaizers. That's, what, that's the label the New Testament gives them. 
We know that during this time of the early church, many devout Jews were willing to say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and we're willing to give allegiance to Jesus. We just believe you should also have observance of the law with it. It's Jesus plus something equals a new life. And so they believed the Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians which involved circumcision, which involved uh, observing the law of Moses and, and following the dietary laws and all of the things that came along with it. This movement became such a big deal in the early church that, that there had to be a council that met in Jerusalem with all of the apostles. And there it was Peter and, and, and James and, and John and Paul and Barnabas and the others, and they wrestled with this issue. And thankfully, these men, these godly apostles, upheld grace and denounced works. They did not put the burden on the Gentiles of becoming Jews first, then becoming followers of Jesus. They rejected anything that would be added to the gospel. Why? It's because when you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. So Paul here instructs believers to put no confidence in the flesh. The gospel is not Jesus plus religion will give you salvation. No, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals and gives a new life, a spiritual life. And for this reason, Paul uses his personal life, uses his own experiences to illustrate what this looks like, what this means, and the vanity of putting hope in those lesser things, those things of the flesh. Unlike the Judaizers, Paul, think about this. This is what Paul's laying out. Paul was a true blood Jew. Look at what he says here. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has it, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuted the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. He lays out his resume, if you will. He is a true blood Jew. He's circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. In other words, he's not a Gentile proselyte who was circumcised later on in adulthood. No, he's a true blood Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the first tribe to have the kingship in Israel. It's also one of only two tribes to continue to walk in the kingly line of David when the, two, the, the nation was split into two peoples. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Along with that, he was a Pharisee. He was part of the religious elite in Israel, the spiritual elite. And if one were to think this religion to be dead, Paul describes, no, my religion is not dead. I am zealous. I'm so zealous, I sought to destroy the church. We know this to be true. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, who is there standing where they put their cloaks before they cast the stones? They laid them at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 9, it's Paul who is headed to Damascus. Saul, I should say, headed to Damascus before he's converted to Christ. He's going there not to, to welcome the church and to bring an offering to the church and to, and to fan their flame and say, go do it for Jesus. No, he's coming to destroy the people of God. And he encounters Jesus on the Damascus road. That's his zeal. Anyone who observed Paul's life would have concluded he is blameless in the eyes of the law. And yet, despite all of his zeal, all of his religious experiences, in Paul's estimation, they were worthless in the presence of Christ. They did nothing to bring true spiritual life to him. 
Now, was these experiences, were these experiences and the heritage bad? No, Paul was proud of his heritage. He loved the fact that he was a Jew. He rejoiced in the fact that he was a Roman citizen. He, he, he celebrated his education and all of the investments that God had made in his life through his heritage. He rejoiced in that. They, however, did nothing to make him right before God. You see, when Paul met Jesus on the road there to Damascus, Paul didn't say, here's my resume. Look, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Look, I, I'm a Pharisee. Look, I, I, I'm a true-blood Jew. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Lord Jesus, look at my resume. No, it tells us that he was blinded in the presence and the righteousness of God. He was like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, undone, lost before the Lord. We don't bring things before the Lord and say, look. He didn't say, hey, I've got a certain ethnicity. I I come from a certain pedigree. Look at my heritage. No, he looks at all of this and he says it's nothing but rubbish. Now, that's a really nice translation in the ESV. It also could be translated, and I believe it probably is in the King James, as dung. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm going to be vulgar for just a moment in the most Christian pastoral way I can possibly be, but I'm going to be uh, vulgar because Paul is vulgar here. Literally what he's saying is this. Paul's saying all of this religious activity was nothing but a big pile of poop compared to knowing Christ. That's the language. The vulgarity here is intentional to make the point, distress the worthlessness of life apart from Jesus. Today, if you're holding on church attendance, if you're holding on to the fact that you've been a member of Red Lane since, since uh, uh, Moby Dick was a tadpole, if you're holding on to the, that, that's a euphemism you can get along with, right? I got to worry about those. If you're holding on to anything, my grandma, she's a godly woman, whatever it is, I, I'm a deacon here, I'm a small group leader here. I'm just telling you right now, I was a lost small group leader for an entire year. Terrible one, probably as well. You can be all of those things. You can be as religious. In fact, here's what's going to happen. The scariest passage in all of the Bible is found in Matthew chapter 7, in my perspective. There will be a day when people stand before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. Did I not? And lay out a list of things that they've done. And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. doesn't matter about your religious experience. It matters about your spiritual life. So today we may be tempted to think about that baptism or the Lord's Supper or tithing or church attendance or any number of other religious activities can make us more acceptable to God. That is not to say that these activities are bad. We should do all of those things. Believers should be baptized. We are supposed to observe the Lord's Supper. We are commanded to give. We're commanded in Hebrews 10 together with the church. We're supposed to use our spiritual gifts in service to others. We do all of that, however, not to gain favor with the Lord. We do that as a worship unto the Lord. We do it in response to the gospel, not to receive the gospel in our lives. We do it because we found spiritual life in Jesus. That brings us to our second point, and these next two are shorter, I promise. The spiritual life, secondly, comes through faith in the justifying work of Christ. Look there, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 9. 
He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We see this picture of faith bringing the justification or being justified through faith. Now, as we've read through this, Paul has described himself with regard to righteousness under the law as blameless. That's what he says. Hey, if you're looking at me as a, from a humanly religious perspective, I am blameless. And yet we know Paul was not sinless. There was no sinless perfection in him. How do we know that? It's because when he stood before Jesus there on the Damascus road, he's blinded and silent. Nothing to say. Because of the righteousness of God. There was nothing that he could bring. No good works were good enough. He was not justified by his works. So he was, like I said earlier, as Isaiah points out, undone or lost. So in order to be right before God, Paul needed someone else's righteousness to be put to his account. He had nothing in his own bank account. I always like when I go to the bank and they, you know, I'll deposit the checks and or the check, and uh, and the and the teller will come back. Would you like a a, a, a uh, what's the term I'm looking for here? Would you like a balance uh, of what's in there? And I'm thinking no, because I don't want to know what my wife spent, how much money we don't have. <laughs> She's not here. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> She's headed to the airport to fly home. She's probably not even watching this. Uh, a balance. We know we understand this financial term of of balance. Paul needed someone to put something in his account. So Paul could describe himself as being part of the circumcision there in verse 3, not because of his ethnicity, not because of his religious experiences, not because of his religious standing, but solely and only because he had placed his faith in Jesus and Jesus had deposited his righteousness in to Paul's account. We call this imputation. Today it's good that we've gathered with the church. It's good that we're sitting here and we have sang songs to the Lord to worship and to praise Him. It's good that we have given tithes and offerings. It's good that you've brought a Bible or a phone or an iPad where you can look at the Bible because it's good that you want to learn. But those things are not enough. You need faith in the person and the work of Jesus to justify you before the Lord. We need Jesus. The spiritual life comes through faith in him and him alone. This brings us to a third point. The spiritual life grows as the flesh is put to death. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Having placed his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, what we learn here in verse 10 is that Paul in no way, in no way thought that he had arrived spiritually. I think there's a danger in Christian living that we get to a point where we think it's okay to coast. Anybody coasting in your spiritual life today? Anybody think that you've kind of hit the plane where you can kind of put it on cruise control and, and not really be intentional about your walk with Jesus? That was never the case with Paul. And I don't think we should attribute to the fact that he's like A++++ personality. You know, that ultimate A-type personality. He is that, was that, but he also understood something we need to grasp this morning. That is, you can never put it on cruise control in your life. 
He never arrived spiritually. He never began to think too highly of himself. I've heard preachers back in the day say that uh, that preacher, that usually they're referring to a preacher uh, because we have a tendency to strut our stuff, and, and they would say something like this, man, he can strut sitting down. That was never Paul. Humble, yet confident in who he is or was in the Lord. He never got bored with his faith. How many of us are bored with our faith? We're probably bored with our faith because we're doing nothing with it. Paul wrote this letter. I want you to think about this. When he writes this letter, he had been walking with Jesus for nearly 30 years. And he's still as passionate at this point as he was just days after that miraculous event outside of Damascus. So Paul tells us here, he desires to know Christ better. He wants to know him more and more. He wants to walk in ever-increasing intimacy with the Lord and experience his glorious resurrection. Now, we don't read into this uh, some sort of idea that Paul's wondering whether or not he's going to be resurrected. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying, I'm hoping to be resurrected. I hope to experience that in my life. Really what he's talking about is, I want to know Christ more and more and more, and I want to experience that resurrection power, not just at the end of it all, but I want to experience it today. Well, you're not dead, Paul. How can you experience resurrection power today? You're not dead. Well, what does he say to the Galatians? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. We're to die to self daily. That's why the point here is that the spiritual life, yes, it's faith through the justifying work of Jesus Christ, but the daily outworking of that is I'm leaning on Jesus, growing in Jesus, not trusting in myself, not trusting in yesterday, not trusting in yesteryear, not trusting in past experiences, but daily humbling myself before the Lord and allowing the resurrection power to transform me and to conform me into the image of Jesus. It takes a whole lot more than religion to transform your your wicked heart. You say, well, that's not very nice to call my heart wicked. I didn't call your heart wicked. Jeremiah did. He says the heart is deceptively wicked and who can know it it takes the resurrection power it takes the power that raised the lord jesus from the tomb to life it takes that type of power every single day to transform your life and to conform you more and more into who jesus wants you to be you know when we teach the gospel and we're going to do that this fall we're going to take all of our adult small groups and our students through the three circles training again So that you can be equipped, better equipped to share the gospel with friends and family and neighbors and all of that. But when we teach through the three circles, we talk about how all of us have been designed by God. How all of us, because of sin, are broken and separated from God. But through the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we faith into it and turn from our sins, we can now pursue and recover what God has designed for us. How do you do that? Every single day looking to Jesus, growing in Jesus. Requires that we die to self, die to the flesh. You see, you cannot hold on to the things of this world while reaching out for the things of heaven. I want to say that one more time. You cannot hold on to the things of this world while reaching out for the things of heaven. What does Paul say here? 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Does it sound like Paul was trying to hold on to that old life while reaching out for the new life? No, it looks like he said, I will crucify the flesh. I will die daily. I will take up my cross and follow Jesus. I will pursue him with a hot heart, with complete intentionality, with submission. I will run after Jesus with everything that I am because he is my life. That's what he told the Colossians. Colossians 3, Christ who is our life, he says. And so becoming like Christ in his death requires we daily nail our fleshly desires to the cross, that we die to self. There is another component to this equation, though. It is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It's interesting that he mentions this. Only the person who is crucifying the desires of the flesh, think about this, will be willing to suffer for the Lord. If you're holding on to the the things of this world, the desires that you have in your fleshly nature, if you're holding on to those, you will never want to suffer for the Lord. You can't do both. You say, I don't know about this suffering thing. Well, first of all, we live in America. It's doubtful that we'll ever be a martyr. But you don't have to be a martyr to suffer for the Lord. You don't have to be a martyr to die to self. You don't have to be a martyr to crucify the flesh in your life. But, but are you willing to stand up and, and say you're a Christian? Let's just start there. It's, a, it's in pretty uh, providential that this morning our small group lesson... Uh, for students and adults, it's coming out of Luke 22, as Peter denies Christ three times, right? We're going to see who Peter, just literally hours before this event, is standing or sitting there with Jesus around the Passover meal saying, I am willing to go to the death for you. I'm willing to be crucified for you. I'm willing to, to stake my life down. If everyone else falls away, Jesus, I will not And then the crowd, the mob shows up in the garden there and Peter gets a little zealous with the sword, misunderstands what Jesus has said. And when it all shakes down, he's running and denying. This morning, suffering for us probably is not martyrdom. It's just, will I take a stand in my neighborhood? Will I openly live as a Christian? Will I openly live as a Christian in in my business? Will I openly live as a Christian on the campus of my school? That's what we're to do. Paul wants to surrender himself. He wants to grow in the Lord. That's going to require daily killing, crucifying the flesh in his life. Verse 11, by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection. I just want to bring some clarity here. This phrase here that's translated by any means possible uh, probably suggests that Paul was uncertain as to the timing and the circumstances of his experience. But we know that Paul was quite aware that his life was going to come to an end. You remember he's headed back from the third missionary journey. He's headed to Jerusalem to, to, to pay a vow, to, take, uh, uh, to fulfill a vow that he had committed to the Lord to bring an offering back to the believers there. And multiple times on that trip, uh, brothers and sisters would come up to him and say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem because you will be arrested. He's like, I know. I, I know. A prophet by the name of Agabus comes and, and takes a belt and, and shows how Paul's going to be uh, arrested and all that. Paul says, I know. Stop, stop badgering me about this. I know. Paul understood the shortness of his life. So he expected all of this. 
There's no wavering in his belief in the resurrection. There's no wavering in his belief in the resurrecting power of Jesus. This is evident in his willingness to suffer for the Lord, which necessitates dying to self. Paul clearly understood the spiritual life grows as the flesh is put to death. Today we love and enjoy good experiences. The Christian life, the spiritual life, however, is so much more than just an isolated experience. Spiritual life is found in a relationship with Jesus because salvation is about knowing him. It's not about knowing about Christ. It's being in relationship with the living Lord. And in that relationship, there is a desire to know him more and more and more. I would just say this morning as your pastor that if there is no desire within your heart to know the Lord, you probably don't know the Lord. I mean, if you're just constantly walking into guilty distance and okay with sin in your life and okay with just nominal Christianity, you're Christian by name only, in other words, you're probably not in relationship with the Lord. But today's a good day to fix that. You're beginning to sense the Spirit of God is kind of searing that upon your heart, saying what the preacher is saying is true, and you're dead in sins and trespasses. You have no hope. You're cut off. You're like Paul standing before the Lord outside of Damascus, undone and lost. You're in a good place this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, and we all deal with some backsliding from time to time, we all deal with the pressures, the, the, the common things of life. Sometimes our hearts are hotter for the Lord than at other times. That's okay. But we want to get to a place in our spiritual walk with the Lord that every single day we're doing everything we can to lay it down and say, Jesus, you pick my life up and you live your life through me. May your life and righteousness be pressed out through mine. We don't want to find our hope in religious activity. We want to find our hope in Jesus. Amen? So this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do just that this morning. I mentioned those three circles earlier many times, if not every Sunday. I kind of describe it this way. The Bible gives us all kinds of news, good, bad, and best. The good news is God loves you, created you, wants to be in relationship with you. That's why you're created. Do you know that? You're a special creation that God wants to know personally. The bad news the Bible tells us is that you're a sinner. You're a wicked person. You're separated from God because of your sin. You're rebellion against God. We're born into this world like that. We sin because it's our nature. It separates us from God. The best news is, is that even though you're wicked to the core and cut off from God and without hope and on your way to a devil's hell, the best news of all is that God himself came to do what you could not do for you. He took your sin upon himself. He bore the pain and the punishment and the judgment for that sin so that you could be forgiven, cleansed, and restored the three circles designed by God broken because of sin and we all know brokenness right we know what that looks like we know how we try to get out of our brokenness we know how we try to fix our brokenness and here's what we also know no matter what you do to fix your brokenness you're still broken in fact many times we make ourselves even more broken but the good news is the gospel of Jesus he came and died in your place but didn't just die as a martyr he died as a savior to be resurrected to new life so that you could have eternal life as well on your way back to pursue and recover all that God desires for you this morning if you don't know Jesus you're online with us you're in this room the invitation is for you to come and we'll get you gladly get you with one of our what we call encouragers they'll walk through the gospel with you 
Maybe this morning you're a believer. You're saying, I'm, I'm just walking at a guilty distance, and I need to come home. The altar's open. Love to pray with you. Our couragers are here as well. Maybe you just want to spin around in your seat and just do business there in your, the quietness of your own seat. Whatever you need to do this morning, let's have freedom to follow the Spirit's leading in our hearts.